Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Spotlight. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design. I, I don't know what's happening. I just keep stumbling when I say my own name now, that I'm the founder of Driven by Design. And joining me is Fiona Chiaka. Hello, Fiona. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. Now, look, Fiona, we, oh, we came across each other because of one of your um, interviews that you were doing around the Salvation Army and how they're using design innovation and human-centered design to help accelerate them into, into a better future. Mm -hmm. So I want to have a chat here about Naked Ambition, your, your business, the idea that you actually claim, and it's a fantastic claim because everybody needs to claim territory, that you're involved with design-led innovation for enterprises. Now, that just sings to my heart, so we're going to have a great <laughs> conversation here. But I'm interested, what does design-led innovation mean to you? Mm. Because looking at your CV, you're not a classic candidate who'd go forward and say, design-led innovation is mm. my playbook. Yes. So I'd probably even narrow in even further in what we do which is evidence-based design for the purposes of innovation. Uh -huh. So rather than often when we talk about design and even saying design-led innovation, and it can be quite confusing for people, the work that we do and what we are, what we really campaign for and champion for with our clients uh -huh. is help using design techniques and disciplines uh -huh. like service design, experience design, UX design to help them make good innovation bets. Mm -hmm. So how can we use these, you know, tools, techniques, and even in some cases, mindsets to de-risk the growth strategies that they have in their organizations. So it's often as simple, simple as that. Okay. So it's not making things, you know, we're not making things more beautiful. We're not about trying to create artifacts for the sake of, you know, even just for them being there, it's how do we make sure that we design experiments um, to help them get clear on what a potential market could be, for example, or to define a new value proposition. Or in some cases, it can even be about exploring different business models. Yeah. So what's awesome there is that you, you've nailed most of the tenets that we need to really go and, and think about if you're an executive who's trying to think what contemporary design is. Yeah. There was a previous era, Now I'll go all the way back to the artisans of Florence and yeah. they were making designed artifacts, you know, objects. Yeah. But the people who are accelerating into the future taking massive valuation leaps because they've been using a design-led approach to their enterprise-wide design, they're not in the artifact business. They're mm. a solve business. Absolutely. And they're in using design to actually use, as you were saying, evidence base. It's not a hunch. Mm. De-risking. But I was interested in one term that you used. Yeah. And it was good bets. Mm. Now, you, you've got a background in financial services, particularly around investment banking. Yeah. Is good bets part of the hangover from the investment banking world? If you say <laughs> we've got a good, a good bet that's been de-risked, is, is that the language that you picked up there? Because a bet and investment generally don't sound like they go together. One of them sounds mm -hmm. speculative and risky and the other one sounds like it's got certainty. Yeah, good pickup. I mean, I think inherently the world of innovation is so risky. 
you know, you can, I mean, there's loads of different models we could talk about if we're talking about, you know, the realms of innovation and, and everything from, you know, futures thinking and speculative styles of innovation, which is where, you know, companies, I think, in some cases can feel like they, they are trying to place a bet in one direction about potentially where they should go. So we actually kind of deliberate about using that language. It's still, you know, you're still, um, I guess, putting your chips on the table in some cases because there's even risk involved in doing this, this kind of work. Our job is to help companies and their teams to, I guess, de-risk as much as possible, so to take away as much of that uncertainty as mm -hmm. we can before we go to market. But in a lot of cases, even right before you launch something to market, you may not have all of those answers. So our job is to get as much confidence as we possibly can in forms of, you know, data via those experiments and the design techniques that we use. But of course, we can't always be right and we may not be. Okay. So I still so think there is a bit of a bet in there. Right. So, so I want to get into that because I'm, I'm loving this conversation because what mm -hmm. we're doing is we're getting into risk. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has highlighted to us is that there's dynamic risks that we keep reevaluating all the time. And since we are living in an age of disruption where there are people who are working out how to do a 5x, 10x, 20x leverage on their innovation, the status quo is now the greatest risk that you can have. If I was thinking in financial terms, the status quo feels like cash. And you are going backwards if all of your all of your wealth is in cash. You have With to no rates. Because <laughs> what's happening is yeah. that growth is ahead of cash. Yep. And so if I said the status quo was like having a large cash reserve, then you're probably the dumbest person. You might be currently the most wealthy, but you could be the dumbest person on the block. Yeah. And then we go into people who do wildly speculative yep. investments. But a good portfolio is actually managed where there's um, quite high risk. Bang, you're right on it. Exactly. And there's and also just, some yep. mid-risk. But the, work, the only thing that isn't in a good balanced portfolio is cash. Yeah. You know, it's... And you've actually just nailed it, Mark. And that is exactly what great innovation portfolio management is. It is exactly, and again, we'll come back to that as well, like background in career and investment banking. It's so similar to managing a really strong portfolio. If you're an organisational executive, you want to make sure that you have a portfolio where on one hand you're doing that transformational, you've touched on there. So how are we exploring new business models, new value propositions, the kinds of things that are really risky, uh -huh. but we're placing our bets on these potential future value that is really hard for us to quantify right now. But then at the same time, we're also managing our existing business in a way that is going to help us maintain our current position. Hopefully that's reasonably strong when you start your innovation or you're doing it. We want to maintain that. And those two things are very different and they require different skill sets. They require different modes of thinking. They require um, different investments as well when it again comes to human capital and financial capital and these sorts of things. And depending on the size of your organisation, it will be 
you know, you'll need to put a different number of bets on those. And this is kind of coming, this is a, it's not my model. This is from the Invincible Company, the guys from Strategizer. Mm-hmm. But it's a very intuitive kind of the, they call it the explore mindsets and the explore techniques and then the exploit. How do you exploit what you're doing right now? And I suppose that the, the only thing that I've got, because we know that the people who are hesitant and that's a word which we now understand a lot more about uh, because of vaccines. The people who are innovation hesitant will hear the word bet. Yeah. And the neurolinguistics will be, I'm not a gambler. <laughs> not realizing that they're actually taking the biggest gamble, which is the status quo is actually irrelevant. Yeah. And, and so I've got this model I talk about, uh, which is on planet design that gravity is 10 times greater than it is on Earth. Yeah. And so if you think that your idea is going to float up, well, it's going to sink very quickly. Mm. And so there's some people who work out how to defy gravity because their innovation is so strong. Yep. But at the same time, their relevance grows that your irrelevance also grows. And irrelevance is such an important thing because... When I hear terms like bet and uh, it, I go, ah, oh, this feels hard. If I said position, mm-hmm. which is, you know, financial, and we, we've got a position in this, I want to change my position. I want to up my position. I want to learn. Yeah. Positions uh, when it comes to innovation, I think, is the type of thing which is enabling the people who are hesitant. Yeah. It feels like the early adopters who are they're, they're being a bit cocky about it. Yeah. And so I think it's re- if we're trying to enable, we need to go get the lead pack who are trying to break through, but we also have to bring along the rest of society. Mm. And there's a model that, uh, that I look at of an accordion. Mm. And if you go get an accordion and you squeeze it too far close together, there's no sound. Mm. And if you pull it too far apart, there's no sound. It's actually in the middle where you get the, the, the full spectrum, the diversity of the, of the sound will come out from the accordion. Because we've got many organisations who are stuck in the status quo and we've got others that are racing ahead, our societal accordion is being stretched too far. Mm. And that's particularly evident in non-for-profits, the people who are trying to care and actually support. And so we wind up, and I'm not sure poverty is the correct term, but it's like these people are now outside the acceptable bounds of being in the modern state they're now mm. in a past era which is a type of poverty yeah. i'm not sure exactly. knowledge poverty well it's a knowledge access. it's an access it's a yeah. leverage yeah and and they are getting poorer by the moment mm. and they're getting more disenfranchised which then means that there's all sorts of problems that come in we need to actually work out how to get that accordion to be in that beautiful range that actually it can move back mm. and forth now, that doesn't mean that you can't have capitalism. It just is we know the accordion has a maximum range and yeah. I've got a feeling in many cases we're seeing parts of our community that actually they're at that bottom end and we need to work out how to lift them up to an acceptable floor. Yeah. Now, we came across each other because the Salvation Army yeah. CEO was having a chat with you and was talking about the really leaps and bounds that they're doing, the reimagining of what yeah. their mission and where and where they fit into the market, where do they fit into a circular economy. 
And that to me was astounding. I'm going, actually, if you're talking to people that are having those conversations, then we need to have a talk about a better future. So a better future having a strong economy, a sustainable environment, and also social equity. Mm -hmm. If we don't have those three levers right, we wind up getting ahead financially, but then we've got the people that are lagging behind. And I think the best example of that is France with the yellow jackets or Mm -hmm. the yellow jerseys. They've got a vote. And they're saying, sorry, France, you're not allowed to innovate because for the last 40 years, your neoliberalism has counted us out of the economic cycle and we can vote to hold you back. Mm. And so what you need to do is work out how to re-include those people so that then France can begin to get its modernity going. Yeah. And like that to me is a really interesting conundrum for an, if you're an uber capitalist, you're saying now the problem is we've got baggage. We can't cut the baggage loose. You can't think of them as baggage. What you've got is a responsibility to get the accordion working. Yeah. You've stretched it too far. And that's a very interesting conversation to get into people's minds. Can you get the accordion to actually start to play the diverse music? Or is it stopping because it's stretched too far? With your background around the finance world, is that a conversation that you've heard people saying? Or Mm -hmm. is it that they just want to keep growth and extraction and leverage? Where are we up to? I'm going to answer that one. I just want to go back on to Matt Davis as well, who is the CEO of the Salvo Stores, because you've touched on something really interesting in this concept of the accordion and even what leaders like him from a design and an innovation perspective are doing, because Mm -hmm. a lot of it, so much of it, Mark, comes down to knowing the kind of innovation that you're doing and the innovation that's required, Mm -hmm. as well as what the organisation, and in their case, Selvo stores and their customers can handle. Mm-hmm. He talked about something so interesting, you know, around like the depth of them understanding their customers and meeting their customers where they are mm-hmm. right now. So that being a lot of disenfranchised members of their community as well that still need to access those stores while also recognising that the largest number of their customer base, which is around 70% of their customer base, are actually, you know, individuals that can afford to shop elsewhere, but are for kind of lifestyle reasons. So coming back to that, you know, how do we design things to make sure that we bring the people along with us that that need to? So for people, you know, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, for example, that Salvo stores still need to solve for, the kind of challenge like a leader like Matt, you know, is you know, he's able to hold those two ideas and act on those two ideas at the same time. Mm-hmm. How do I propel my organisation into the future and still think about the possibilities so I can capture the kind of funding and finances from that group of consumer, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and then even use that and reinvest that back to do the sort of service within the community that we as the Selvos were founded on and the stories at the same time. So he's running with a model of growth and innovation that is literally meeting and his customers exactly where they are. And he he does that from a design perspective by knowing his customers so well that he can make sure that one experience, one entire bricks and mortars experience solves all of those and then is kind of filling the coffers at the same time 
for the sorts of change that they can really drive. Yeah. So I think from an economic perspective, that's a great example of the power of, you know, we talk about like three different types of innovation being the transformational that you've already mentioned, which is the one, you know, when we think about the big organisations that take the really big leaps, like, you know, in Amazon with their, um, you know, with their, like Amazon Web Services is an example of like something that's completely outside the business model or the value prop and it's really, you know, transformed that organisation that is a big bet. That's a really big leap. But then for organisations like the Selvos, you're talking about that more sustaining efficiency style innovation, which is the more accessible one. And again, to come back to how do we create these kind of systems of innovation that are quite inclusive, it's more in that sustaining and efficiency style of innovation that can be a lot more accessible. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important that we have people who are dealing tactically on yeah. how to solve the now, yeah. which is what's happening there. But we also need to think strategically, which yeah. is how do we solve the future state Yeah. so that some of the things that we're needing to deal with now yeah. are a thing of the past. Yes. And, and so you used a really interesting term before, which was being disenfranchised. Mm. Now... Disenfranchised is one of those, we can, we can throw it around as a term, but because there's no hard test, it's very hard to say whether somebody is enfranchised or disenfranchised. Yeah. And you might be in one area and then you're not in another. It's not yeah. like a, one label fits everything. Yeah. So next year we're starting a, uh, a series of, we're looking at for the Better Future Foundation of what are the futures that we want to see? Yeah. And so, and there's going to be a whole series of the futures. But the question that we that we've worked out that we need to get to, which is which is what are the priority problems to solve? Mm. And so there's a, there's a fantastic um, and which is quite easy hanging low hanging fruit. It's the shitty deal for women. Mm. Basically, the shitty deal for women is that because of your gender and because you care, you're going to have dramatically worse economic prospects than a male counterpart. Mm. And that's uh, the most obvious one is superannuation because you're absent from the contribution cycles of superannuation. Therefore, we don't uh, top that up. We don't see the benefit that you're bringing to the community being a benefit to yourself. We see that it's actually a luxury and a choice. And therefore, you made that choice, you miss out. Mm. That is just wrong. So working out how do you get the people who are caring that we show that as a community, we care for them and we show a reflection of the benefit that they bring as a benefit to them. Mm. Working that puzzle out is one of the shitty deals that we need to work out. Mm. It takes quite a bit of um, economic thinking, but it also needs policy thinking of people saying this is a necessary thing that we need to fix. Because if we can't work out how to fix low economic leverage, we can't fix many of the other many other problems. And a, a really interesting one is low economic leverage for females means that they remain because they have low socio, uh, social mobility. Mm. When they know that they're in a um, toxic relationship, they will stay in the pressure cooker of the toxic relationship. And people who are most likely non-violent people but are in a pressure cooker, things get pushed. And then that toxic circumstance now becomes exacerbated. They're exposed to a danger that's there. 
and we've got something which is then called domestic violence. Mm. Now, if it was a factory, we'd take the people away from the dangerous circumstance. <laughs> you know, we'd work. But yeah. in, in homes, we're not doing that. And the reason we're not doing it is because of economic mobility. The shitty deal for women means that they haven't got the economic leverage. Like, you can look at this and say, maybe we could solve a lot of the domestic violence. If we solve the problem back here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's going to be a lot of people who say, no, 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 you're, you're a male who's forgiving men for being violent. I'm saying, no, I'm not trying to forgive men for being violent. I'm actually trying to reduce the violent occurrence and the exposure to violence. You're just talking root cause of the problem. Exactly. Where is this? Where does the problem begin from? Yeah. So, so the shitty deal on superannuation and on, on pay and remuneration has secondary and tertiary effects, quaternary effects that actually then mean that the whole life for a woman is so much shittier than it is for men. There's also a shitty male deal. There's a shitty queer deal. There's a shitty disabled deal. And if we can't work out these shitty deals, we can't actually imagine what a future is because we've got people who are stuck in now mm. and a shitty deal now. You know, and I, I think back to the areas around Port Melbourne that had the... A removal of the slums and the reason we did that was it was bad for all public health but then the economic uplift that came because we got people out of slum living and we got them into it was very basic worker living but it actually changed the profile of, mm. of the Melbourne community dramatically and I think we need to take those perspectives which is we need to work out how to get those people who are disenfranchised are they disenfranchised from participating in a in an active society are they disenfranchised in in having um, social mobility, which means that they can move around and that they can, if there's danger, that they've got the option to go somewhere yeah. else. All of those things are necessary if we're trying to go get to that better future and have that equity, make sure we've got the sustainable environment. Because I can tell you, somebody who's got low economic leverage doesn't think about the environment the same as somebody who has oh, Absolutely. That's, I mean, it's almost a privileged position to have the time to be thinking about that. Exactly. But just coming to... You know, the two things that you're talking about as well here in this, um, I'm loving the sound of this Better Futures series that you're talking about as well, is do we come at a lot of these huge social deep challenges from the perspective of we need to find the deepest, you know, the root cause of the problem and we need to, you know, dive into that problem from a design perspective, understand as much as we can, you know, find, find out, you know, where we need to solve and then try and solve coming at it from the problem, I'm saying, or from a futures perspective, uh, is there, or and, can we think about maybe what are some of those societal trends, technology trends, what futures are heading towards and could look like when it comes to, you know, how we're going to be structured as a society, the kinds of ways that we're going to live, the sorts of changes that potentially are coming and then try and solve it. Maybe, you know, is it, so I'm not saying like it's oversimplifying to say, you know, optimistic and pessimistic, but rather than just focusing on the problem, are there ways to bring maybe some of those future trends and think about bringing, you know, how they might balance it out? Yeah, and, and so I suppose what you're going there is the, the leverage side is thriving. Yeah. And what we try to do is get people who are struggling, get them to just survive. Yeah. So get them out of struggle to survive. That's not the goal. The yeah. goal is actually leveraging everybody to thrive. Yeah. And 
And I know that there's a, there's a lovely um, challenge that's given as a philosophical challenge about why education is important for everybody in the world. And the idea was that there was an eight-year-old girl in, say, Syria who um, knew the answer to cancer. And if we don't give her education, that we're not going to get the answer to cancer. Mm. Now, we, we know that there's flaws in that because there's not just one cancer. But what we also know is that Albert Einstein read the same maths books as every other child. But there was something inside Albert Einstein, which was the unique human moment that meant when he learned his maths and when he learned his physics, his mind went off somewhere totally different. Mm. Mozart learned the same notes as every other musician and he went off somewhere totally different. Yeah. So I think it's important that we, that we focus on that. And I, actually, last week I was refinancing a loan mm. and the lady was on the, uh, who was on the call, I said, oh, where are you from? And an awesome name. And uh, she said, I'm from Eritrea. I said, I know where that is. And she said, surprisingly, well, I said, yeah, unfortunately, I know about it because of despot governments, war and famine. Yeah. And she said, yeah, that's why I'm here, because yeah. the family needed to get away from that. And she highlighted to me that the Pfizer chief medical officer is a young girl from Eritrea. Mm. She was that eight-year-old girl who had the opportunity to get to get the education, to get the opportunities. And we now know that everyone's busting down the doors to go get Pfizer. Yeah. That eight-year-old child is the Pfizer chief mm. medical officer. So I think it's our imagination needs to be about the thrive. Yeah. And then that's where we can say, well, you know, we'll go back to the music and the accordion. Yeah. There's all of these Irish people who are playing the accordion or Italians, and then we go give it to somebody from Eritrea and they get a completely different groove going and go, hey, this is new music. Yeah. And that's happened all around the world that we've seen the diversity and the inclusion changes the music that we listen to, yeah. cultural influences. You can also do that from our knowledge. You can go do that from our innovation. It can also do it from our economics. So I think it's, it's really important to, to not just think of the disenfranchised as We've got to support them. Yes. It's actually we need to enable them to be their maximum potential. Yeah. And that's an exciting idea. And even like to think, and this is exciting, that to come back to me and think about the work that you're doing, which is elevating design as a discipline, rewarding design, finding some of the best design in the world and the best designers you know, how and even what we, the change that we have seen in the last five years from these kinds of disciplines being almost on the fringes to becoming so mainstream to now this whole industry exploding. Again, to bring it back to what could better futures look like in our societies if more people had these skills. You know, you're giving the examples of your Mozarts or your Einsteins who, I don't know, maybe just had the inclination to sit there I mean not Mozart I think his dad was standing over him all day forcing him to do it but in Einstein's maybe it was just a case of tinkering away and that was the way that he operated but you know thinking about your eight-year-old mm. if if it really we mainstreamed simple tools like design thinking for these groups and I know there's a lot of movement to do this across education but if this truly was mainstream and people have those abilities to make that change and not give up when you launch an idea and it's not popular and, you know, because you haven't done the experimentation, you haven't done the work, you haven't done the de-risking that we spoke about before. Like these are the kinds of, I guess, equalising 
tools and techniques that could have a lot of power when it comes to how do we empower yeah and i think it's working out what are the priority problems that need to be solved yeah or access i mean this is let yeah maybe it's around mobilizing people around some of those biggest challenges but even just giving people those skills as a baseline you know, for these kinds of skills to really be taught in our schools, which is only just beginning. That's a massive opportunity. Our schools internationally, everywhere else. And even, you know, for all you asked before about, you know, how do I bring my banking background to the work that we do now? It's like, how can these organisations that are adopting these innovation techniques themselves and have the kinds of you know, surplus funds and a rethinking corporate social responsibility, how can they use that? How can they begin to invest in these sorts of initiatives to teach people these kind of techniques as well? I think there's a massive opportunity to see more of that. And that's something that I think even, you know, like the, the banks have started to do to kind of reframe their, um, you know, people's perspectives of banks and their brand um, perception as well, I think, more broadly. And, I, and the more we go give courageous leaders yeah. a spotlight to go and say, well, this is the transformative insight that they've got, then we start to accelerate because yeah. then people attach to it and they say, I'm also going to do that. So one of the, one of the CEOs who I, I think I've actually got like a CEO crush on him mm. um, is Bracken Darrell from Logitech. Now, Logitech are a really interesting company. They make mice and keyboards. Uh, a lot of people would know them. Gaming consoles, video um, mm -hmm. uh, cameras, etc. But Bracken has an understanding that for the future to accelerate, we need to have inclusion. Mm. We need to have new concepts. In the last 12 months, he's enabled his team. And, I, and I, one of the things I love about Bracken, total the attribution to the people who are doing it. So he's enabled his team to imagine that there is an area of copyright that wasn't being catered for. And it was to do with dancers that were turning up in TikTok videos and memes. Mm. And because Logitech has such a, a foothold in video, they saw so much of this video was being made with their products. Mm but it was a non-copyrightable format yeah. and it didn't make sense. So now they've turned around and that they've, they've got it that it's a recognised form of copyright. You know who the originating artist is. Similar to music sampling, there's now actually, you know, uh, residuals that can come through. Yeah, then, like NFTs or some kind of derivative as well. There's, that. there's yeah. similar concepts. You've mm. also got that there's a chart. So there's mm. the billboard chart for the, for the dance moves because these are new expressions of culture. Yeah. And I go, how awesome. Mm. At the same time, he's also got a group inside the business that are actually putting on the, as a label on their packaging, what is the invested carbon in each one of their products? Mm. So you've got the social equity parts going, yeah. you've got the environment part, and he's got one of the strongest stocks since he took over as CEO. I think they've grown sevenfold since he took over as CEO. Yeah. And he's a darling of, of the equities markets. And he's saying, so the formula is there. C corporate social responsibility doesn't have to be a compliance list. Yes. You might be actually using diversity, leverage. You may be actually turning around and saying, how's this becoming our culture? 
how does it become our new product range? Because people and, and like those things you can catch on to that, you know, from mm. the customer's perspective of Logitech, but also, you know, as an employee value proposition to want to work for an organization that is doing this kind of thing. And that's sort of where that gold dust really comes from. Because even in, you know, I mean, I even think I think since I left the bank, the transformation that we've seen is, you know, people aren't aren't fooled by organizations trying to pretend that they're doing the right thing. Like we, everyone is more, probably even more so to a worrying point now, but really distrustful of being fed a story and being told that, you know, we're the good guys and we're just going to mitigate, you know, bad behavior over here by trying to put a halo on ourselves. Have I frozen there? No trying to put a halo on ourselves over here by getting, you know, our 4,000 employees to go out and plant trees one day in mm. 365, that it's just not enough anymore. And we want to see, we actually want to see that come through in the way that the organisation is delivering its products and services. Like to come back to some of those circular themes that you were talking about before, like again, from an innovation perspective, there, there's a really, you know, there are ways to deliver a really compelling value proposition that links to, you know, an individual's, you know, desire to have impact on the world and to, to live that desire through their purchasing decisions that we're seeing play out across the board now, you know, even just even from a retail perspective, seeing, you know, no packaging, that no packaging customer experience is something where it's like people and people are voting with their cash, you know, they're voting with their brand alignment. Like that thing is still there like it was with our Nike ticks when we were, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s. But instead of it being about that label now, you know, it's about that, you know, I support this organisation with my dollar because I can genuinely see that they're really doing the right thing hmm. um, and I'm not going to be kind of tricked into it. Fiona, I think it's evident that you, like me, are a hopetarian. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not a vegetarian, so I thought I might as well become a hopetarian. Um, you obviously have hope that we can get there, and I think that idea that we can get there and we can inspire people is such an important thing. Now, two things I do before I go wrap up mm. in one of these spotlights is there's two questions. One is who's inspiring you, but before we get to that one, is there anything that we should have discussed that we've skipped over or will we carry that over to a future conversation? Oh, I'd love to carry it over to a future. I want to know more about your Better Futures plan. Um, I think, you know, just thinking about your audience and the design execs that tune into this and people wanting to do this, I think my biggest kind of urging a lot of things we talk about when people talk about design-led innovation and why doesn't it get enough traction and why isn't it? propelled and I think it just comes back to that point about knowing what kind of innovation you're doing so I guess that's the only thing would be to urge people to question a little bit more you know rather than just trying to say we're doing innovation or this is you know what the organization needs to do by just looking and I guess um, emulating other aspirational organizations and thinking that that's right for their business model is probably to question and go what is right for us, where we are now, and where should we be investing that time and energy and even potentially coming back to some of this, that greater question of the kind of impact that they want to have as well. And, and look, there's all sorts of signals that are around that are actually holding back design innovation in Australia. Yeah. 
One of the signals is the Australian magazine is a design as artifact style, not design as CEO leverage from innovation. So as long as the Australian actually considers design to be about artifacts, it's not going to wind up in the pages that says this is where economic leverage is happening. Yeah. The other part where we've got it is that, you know, Creative Victoria is one of the most um, misplaced portfolios because Mm. what you have is people who are um, crafts and artists people who are involved with the designing of artefacts are now hamstringing the entire business innovation in Victoria because if you use the word design in the Victorian government, you wind up with crafts people and arts people. You don't wind up saying, how do we get economic leverage? This is, Mark, there's a, there's a, a creative enterprises grant, and if you're aware of that, that came out from the state government. And like we went through like, okay, cool, this actually sort of fits. This is right in our sweet spot, I think, for the business. And it's like the list of all of the qualifiers. And then design is just like almost this little afterthought hmm. subset of this and the whole concept of of you know, building more creativity or being an organisation that actually fosters creativity, educates people on creativity and drives that is something that I'm not even sure if it's if that is going to qualify. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, I completely agree. I think so, you used to work in that space, didn't you? Well, no. I, I was in uh, the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Yeah. And so I saw this happen with the idea of the digital economy. And there was yeah. this fight. It was a massive fight. And there was Film Victoria saying that multimedia, as it was known in 1996, multimedia is part of the filmic creative process that should be in Film Victoria. Yeah. And then there was a guy, um, Terry Dyson, who was uh, at uh, Business Victoria, who was saying, no, uh, digital media is about innovation in business. Yeah. Now, Terry was... um, let's say he was a formidable person that you didn't want to be on the wrong side of, an amazing Mm. person to be on the right side of. Yeah. He managed to go get that portfolio to go sit in business and the state has benefited from that. The Mm. worst thing that could have happened was that the people who were in the film grants world, a little bit like the people who were the arts grant world, holding back our design industry, the, it should be an innovation. And, you know, if I go talk about digital technologies, which is all about design innovation. I mm. think I saw you had um, some of it. I feel like it, that that kind of pe- people almost label everything as digital transformation now. It's sort of like that's kind of become a byword for innovation, where it's that is one of those kind of that sustaining category. I think like transformation, as you said before, status quo, you're dead. Yeah. Transformation, you're going to survive if you're you have to at least be doing that. Is where I would put that. We will probably do a separate conversation about where... So in 2014, every one of the major tech companies stopped being a technology company and became a design lead company. And there's a whole conversation around that. But, you know, it is about transforming economies. It's about transforming legislation. It's about transforming government services. It's not about making another vase to go on a shelf or a tapestry. But is this ever going to come from government is what I question as well. I think you see it coming from you know like the the um group i got stumbling my words now but the, you know like uh scott farquhar and the whole gang that got together recently to sort of say we're going to create a consortium oh. of 
You mean yeah. Blackbird or? Uh, no, no, no. Just kind of like they're just basically calling themselves like a co-op of like just to drive tech in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that... Private industry taking on themselves, basically. It's yeah. a governmental type role, but it's private industry saying we're not look, getting it. And you need to have that. But what we know about technology is technology is about... Um, it's about things and systems. It's not about humans. Mm. And the thing that design does is it's actually about solving human needs that may utilise technology. Yeah, as so an when, enabler. Yeah. When the tech companies saw that they actually were trying to earn money from humans, they had to solve human problems, not just feed them technologies. And so that's where I can see the, the white sits at the front of the cycle, not back. The experience that I get through doing the New York Design Awards, London, Shanghai, all of these are different markets. Mm. I know the markets where they've got it working. I've seen the signal and that's coming from government in mm. those markets. Okay. And it works. Mm. We have lazy government with a lazy media that yeah. is actually somewhere back in the 1980s thinking about design. Best thing and, you've said all day. <laughs> and, and the other thing that we have is yeah. we have very lazy industry associations. Mm. Design is meant to be uncomfortable. Design is meant to be that you are confident in being in next. Mm. I'm trying to go build a status quo from yesterday. Yeah. And when you have people like the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, being they're holding Melbourne Design Week, mm -hmm. you're going, they're a museum. How the hell are they involved with Next? Yeah. They don't get paid for Next. They get paid for how many people come through their door. Mm. That's not the design industry. Design industry is about courageous, it's about being uncomfortable, and it's about taking people where they wouldn't be able to take themselves. Do you think it's because they don't get it? Like, I find that well, as well. Is it they can't even be bothered really trying to understand what this is about? Is that what you're saying, the laziness? Like, what do you actually see from... Because okay. it's, it's a mad to even ignore. Like, I feel like it's at the point, you know, often it's industry is going to make the government wake up. Like, if you even just, like, you know, the, the kind of... You only need to look on LinkedIn to see how many jobs are available in this sector and the incredible growth of design even in the last two years or even since the pandemic began I think it's exploded again and that a lot of that's tech related as you're talking about as well but like how long can they ignore it for I guess is kind of what I'm thinking now so I think we have it we have a, um, a little bit of a dilemma that money is being thrown at effectively moribund industry associations mm. in a war between the um, CEO of the National Gallery of Victoria and therefore the state government and Naomi Milgram as, as a philanthropist. And they're, you know, they're having this little battle of who can actually claim design in the Victoria more than the other. But none of it's actually about transforming business. All no. of it's about arts, culture. Yeah. And, and the argument that I would have with them is arts and culture are extraordinarily important. They are the privilege that comes from a strong economy. They do not make a strong economy. Now, it's fantastic that you've got a strong economy that can afford to have a great art sector, but having a great art sector doesn't create a great economy. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and Spring Street is listening more to the people who are banging on their door more regularly. Mm. And if you're a total government-funded organisation like the National Gallery, 
or if you're a philanthropist who's trying to go and challenge the National Gallery, mm. then you've got great access to setting the policy in the direction, which is then unfortunate for every business enterprise in the state, because the state government signaling is not, and it's on both sides of politics, the state government signaling is not use design innovation to accelerate your business. It's actually look at something pretty. Yeah. And look at and something. It's interesting though, because it is coming back to the outcome there, isn't it? It's like design for the purposes of what? So is it designed for the purposes of something creative, something functional, like your vase example before? Is it designed for the purposes of delivering value to an organisation to for growth, for innovation, for all of those things that we're talking about? And in which case is it like, does, is design the driver for where it should sit there or is the outcome the driver for that kind of ownership? Mm. In which case it's like, because we always talk now about business design, like that's where you even dropped, you know, just design led. We're like, we're business designers for innovation. It's evidence-based design, just staying away from it for those very reasons, because it was always design the fluff. <laughs> How does that actually link to innovation? Is it just coming up with creative ideas and post-its in a room? And, and globally, the term that's being used is enterprise-wide design. Yeah. And that's what the people are saying. So we want to use enterprise-wide design to actually design every one of our processes. We want to solve problems. Yeah. And it's actually a solve culture, not a style culture. Yes. And, cool. and having that language where you can talk about, well, I'm focused on applied design that solves. You might be focused on style design, which is very pure. Mm, Fantastic. I like that. Maybe we should be in different conversations because yeah. <laughs> I don't need to go and actually challenge the pure designers who are trying to go and make artifacts. Yeah. But I need them to, to stop strangling the opportunity for the signaling from the government mm. of what design innovation can do for every enterprise in the state to bring massive economic leverage. And that's the bee in my bonnet. So wow, this so is there. great. But, but I love I, those now, definitions too. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, I want to dig in. Who's inspiring you? Do you know who's inspiring me at the moment, Mark? It's actually just a guest we had on the podcast, um, Victor Purton, who is uh, runs the Centre for Optimism here in Australia. So he's an ex-poly. Um, and has run a couple of leadership organisations and started the Centre for Optimism just recently. Mm -hmm. And it was such a wild card episode. <laughs> ended up having us do something called laughing yoga for the last 60 seconds, which is just literally starting to laugh. So you feel like a maniac, but it was it truly one of the most kind of contagious but also uplifting um, conversations that I've had in ages because it's awesome I mean, this has been amazing as well, but it's like, it's really hard to get away from the everyday drag. You know, we're living in crazy, crazy Melbourne at this moment in time where, you know, it's earthquakes and it's plagues and it's <laughs> just about everything you can imagine. And I think sometimes, which is links to some of what we were talking about in our work, we can really get into solving the problem and focusing on the problem and, and that in itself can get super heavy. And I do think as designers, you know, optimism is one of the, the key mindsets that we need to bring to the work that we do. So I loved that. That really inspired me and reminded me as a leader to continue to bring that optimism to the team, to our clients, to the work that we do and to the better futures that we are put on this earth to create. Yeah, and I first met Victor when I was in the Department of Career and Cabinet. Did you? Uh, okay. Yeah, so, and uh, look, he, he's one of those people who his, his 
journey has been very long mm. and it may not even been a journey. It might have been an expedition. I'm not sure <laughs> he knew where he was going when he started. So journey, you know where you're going. An expedition, you're going to the unknown. So his expedition has been long, and but he's always had this, I'm trying to go and actually get people to think about their betterment. Mm. And he's been one of those players who's always focused on what we can. And if we're going to get to a better future, we've got to have people who think about betterment okay. and we can. Yeah. Fiona, I'm going to wrap it up there. It's, it's been wonderful to wander around in your mind. We, we have to meet in person one day. We do. We do. We do. We do. Can't wait. You're down in Mornington Peninsula, aren't you? I, uh, the, I am based in the International Design Station here in Blair Gowrie on the Mornington wow. Peninsula. <laughs> I'm down there often. I, will, I might even see you down there for a drink soon. Well, that sounds fantastic. Hopefully uh, that's because it's your principal place of residence somewhere in Lockyer. But there we go. All right. So it's been lovely to go talk to you. And uh, please keep putting that enterprise-wide design out there. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's really been fun.